0: up on today's show, Calgary Mayor Jody Gondek and Edmonton City Councillor Andrew Knack will join us to talk about restrictions. Liberal MP and Cabinet Minister Randy Boisno will join us to talk about division that his party may be responsible, according to Liberal MP Joel Lightbound. And we'll also talk about the hidden deadly epidemic in partner violence. As we talked about earlier, uh, it looks like we're in a situation where the province has a plan and there's a lot of different Uh, groups, municipalities, school boards that have issues with it and are looking at other things that they may want to do. One of those is Calgary City Council. And joining us to talk about that is Mayor Jody Gondek. Uh, Mayor Gondek, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me on, Shay. Now, shortly after the announcement from the Premier, you were on Twitter um, outlining a number of concerns, I think you had, about the announcement that the Premier made. Um, Maybe even more so than, you know, what it means is the way it was handled. Would that be fair? You know, saying that you feel there was really no way for cities to even be heard on this issue by the province.
1: Yeah, you know, last week when we saw the Facebook, um, whatever it is, Facebook Live thingy that um, the Premier did, it wasn't actually a press conference, He mused that there would be restrictions lifting and that potentially changes to the Municipal Government Act would prohibit municipalities from having any say, and that was a big shock to all of us that are in municipalities. So um, I mentioned to him that uh, perhaps having some consultation with us would be a good idea, and we didn't exactly get that. I did get a one-hour heads-up about what was coming. On Monday, which really didn't do much, there was myself, Mayor Sohi, Mayor Heron, and Reid McLaughlin. All of us said the same thing. You know, thanks for having us in here, but what's the data? Can you share the information, and why were we not
0: consulted? Um, Now that that ship has sailed, a a lot of um, discussion taking place as to what municipalities may possibly do in light of the fact that this is the direction the province is going Consultation be damned. The discussion yesterday in Calgary Chambers was do we want to go with a restriction exemption program? That was voted down. We're not going that way. Um, What is the plan now? What is still under consideration for Calgary City Council?
1: So we have been um, talking to other municipalities and trying to work with other. Um, civic leaders to figure out what everyone thinks should be done. Uh, frankly, we were mirroring what was suggested at council in Edmonton. Yep. Now, in Edmonton, they approved this idea of administration coming back with a report on what a restriction exemption program locally would look like, as well as a request for the mayor to ask for the science that uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health used to make the decision here in committee, has not gone to council yet, In committee, the majority of members and almost everyone from council was there voted against exploring a local program. But they did vote in favor of asking chief medical officer of health for the information that she used. So uh, it comes back for another kick at the cat on Tuesday next week when we have a council meeting.
0: Um, Now, the premier, I I just want to play this for you, if I can. Uh, Him talking about, you know, how he feels about this kind of activity and, and what he might do about it.
2: I'm happy to discuss this with them, but I don't think Albertans want to end up in a situation where municipal politicians end up improvising uh, in a, a completely separate public health policy when that is not their responsibility.
0: I'm just wondering how you feel about that with the Premier saying, you know what, hands off. This is provincial jurisdiction. We're responsible for this. You guys just go along with what we're saying. I mean, it's different from what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, but um, what's your take on it?
1: I think that this government uses what they need to when they need to. In July of 2020, they were pretty much begging us to do our own thing because they didn't want to make a decision, so we did. We brought in a face-covering bylaw and a mask mandate. Um, When they lifted the restrictions too soon, again, last year, we had to take measures to make sure that we were strengthening whatever programs they were putting in place. So when they don't want to make a decision, it's very convenient to defer to us so that we are deemed to be the decision maker. But when they want to do something, they try to take any authority away from us. And I'll remind people that the Municipal Government Act very clearly states that public safety is well within the realm of civic decision makers. So you know, his comment about, I'm happy to, to chat with municipalities, okay, show me. I haven't seen that yet.
0: How far does this go? Like, the Premier has actually said, you know, we can take a look at legislation to make sure that municipalities can't, as he calls it, improvise public health legislation. Um, how, far, do, how far does this go? Um, how far are you willing to take it in terms of if this is something that Calgary wants to do or you want to do or council votes to do? Um, I mean, just where does, this, where does this end up with this kind of, you know, push and pull between the province and the municipalities?
1: I think this um, management of the pandemic is just uh, an indication of a larger problem, and that is there's um, no desire for collaboration with municipalities, and, and every municipality will tell you that. This provincial government does not see us as a partner. Um, it's it's troubling to me that the federal government is willing to enter into relationships with us on some pretty serious issues, like housing. And we can't even get uh, a conversation with the province on pandemic management, so this is. This is just yet another example of a relationship where we are not viewed as partners.
0: Um, I'm just wondering, like the, as you say, I mean, the municipalities have their issues, but you know, the ATA, um, school boards, and you know, you mentioned in your Twitter statement that you've heard from a bunch of different groups. I know the Calgary Chamber of Commerce has some problems with what's going on. I'm just wondering how we got so far away from "we're all in this together." Let's follow the science. Let's listen to the experts. I mean, it seems to me, Mayor. Absolutely nobody is, is on the same page anymore. Everybody has their own thoughts, their own opinions on what's best for them. And how does, for the citizens of Calgary and of Alberta, how do we look at what's going on at the different levels of government, school boards and all the rest, and say, who do we believe? Who do we follow? Who do we trust here?
1: It's an excellent question, Shay, And I think we have gotten so far away from coming together and having civil discourse around how we best manage this. Um, it's become incredibly divisive and polarized. We see it playing out everywhere. Not only has everything become polarized, any discussion that you have, but the one around the pandemic has become particularly heated and dangerous. I mean, we are we have people in the name of freedom locking um, economic movement of goods and, at our own border. I mean, we've got people in the name of freedom desecrating, you know, sites of, of great value to our national heritage. I mean, I I don't know how we got here, but I got to tell you, someone's got to start lifting the conversation up and talking about what's best for society because we are in a really bad state.
0: What's your responsibility? How can you do that? I mean, you are the mayor of Calgary. I mean, you've got a big platform. What can you do to try and change the dialogue?
1: Well, I did my best over the weekend to reach out directly to Premier to ask for a consultation. I can tell you that I continue to do that. Um, And I try to work with ministries to explain what it is that we need here, whether it's around the pandemic or harm reduction strategies or how we take care of people in positions of vulnerability. We can't do this on our own. And I'm very willing to work together, but, you know, you have to be willing to listen to us, and every municipality feels the same way. We feel frozen out of every conversation. Uh,
0: Mayor Gondek, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me on, and have a great day. You too. That is Calgary Mayor Jody Gondek, and as you know, as we heard, they're they're looking at a bunch of different possible um, steps that they may take. But as you heard, um, they decided not to get more information on. Um, a restriction exemption program just within the city of Calgary. Now the city of Edmonton took an opposite approach and they will get the information. Now the city of Edmonton has not said we're bringing in a restriction exemption program. Let's not get ahead of things here, but they have said we will have city administration bring back the information so that we can discuss it further. But, um, Calgary City Council decided not to go that route, but they are looking at doing other things. You know what I mean? What can they do in terms of mask mandates, apparently exploring possibly some kind of a vaccine passport system? I don't know how that would be any different um, from the restriction exemption program. So a lot of questions are, are still up in the air. So... To tell us what the plans are in Edmonton, we have Andrew Knack joining us now, who is a city councillor from Edmonton. Um, councillor Knack, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, a little bit different between you and Calgary. Uh, the Calgary Council voted to not explore the option of a restriction exemption program. But City Council in Edmonton, certainly not saying we're going to do it, but saying, yeah, let's take a look at that and asking for some information, Correct. Yeah,
2: exactly. I think, And that, that really was the motion. We're going to see what what's the practical options are, how you might even do it if you were going to try to do it. Um, but I think we need to at least have that conversation before making a decision either way. I think after t- after a couple of years of this, it's, it's the prudent thing to do.
0: Um, so what you're looking at is basically... Um continuation of the restriction exemption program we're all familiar with um, at, a, mm-hmm. at a local level or something kind of like that, right? With screening or testing or, or something with city facilities, essentially.
2: Yeah. So the, the options could range all the way from just continuing on with what the province uh, previously had to, as you've noted, maybe just in city facilities doing some type of uh, screening where maybe you're doing a temperature check and asking people about symptoms. What we've seen in in a number of spots uh, for the last little while. So that sort of th- that range is what we're going to explore and,
0: and potentially not doing anything at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's the timeline on that? When will that come back to council? Um, when can we expect a possible decision? So the, the motion
2: asked for this to come back as soon as possible. It was suggested that our city administration would need a couple of days to create some draft bylaws uh, before we'd be able to consider that. So most likely it's it's sometime early next week uh, would, would be the earliest we'd be able to have a conversation.
0: Uh, I don't know if you heard the conversation I had with Mayor Gondek of Calgary, but one of the major concerns, and she took to Twitter immediately after Jason Kenney's announcement to talk about it, was she felt like... Um, As mayor of Calgary, she's begged, she's pleaded, she's yelled, she's tried to be part of these decisions and these discussions and hasn't been able to get a seat at the table at all. Um, What's your experience as a councillor with City of Edmonton? Were you consulted? Were you involved? Was there any involvement from the City of Edmonton, our capital city, in what the province did this week? None.
2: And that's that simple. We've asked, we've (laughs) made numerous requests. Our city administration has made requests, and there's been no attempt to to have any type of engagement uh, with, with any municipality, from what I understand, at this stage.
0: Um, what would you have wanted? I mean, uh, I, I think, you know, uh, Mayor Gondek was, and what city council has now asked is, can you give us the information that you made your decisions on, and we'll make our decisions based on the science that you're using as a province, Um, What did Dr. Hinshaw say? Um, What would you have asked of the province um, had you had a seat at the table?
2: I I think it's it's very much that, a a matter of sharing the information that they're using to inform decisions. I've talked about this a lot the last couple of weeks here, which is that, uh, when it comes to municipal governments, um, most of what we do—the vast, vast majority of what we do—has to be done in public, so everyone gets to see the same information we have access to. So it's not like there's there's sort of hidden decisions being made. Um, this is an issue both provincially and federally. So just to be clear, it's not so much a partisan as it is a criticism of our of our provincial and federal systems, which is important decisions like this always get made behind closed doors with cabinet and and i think when we talk about the division that's been forming at different times and that lack of trust i think that that exists and that materializes and it amplifies when you don't share that information when you're not willing to have open and honest discussions certainly if we had all of that information and a decision was made there's still going to be a point where not everyone agrees with what decision is being made, but at least you can better understand why it was being made. Maybe you can respect the decision-making process. But I think specifically related to COVID, we have seen numerous times where this provincial government has gone uh, seemingly in a different direction than the advice of, say, our medical professionals. And uh, unfortunately, numerous times, I think we've seen the negative consequences of that. So there's a a bit of lack of trust. Uh, On the other hand, Omicron does appear to be a less severe overall, although still a significant number of deaths. We can't ignore that reality. Um, And and so maybe this is that transition point into what might be a new normal. But until you see that data and understand, it's it's hard to have trust in the decisions being made.
0: Um, counselor, how far does this go? That's the, that's the question that I have. Like when, um, you know, the premier of Quebec came out earlier this week and said, um, or last week and said, we're not doing the, you know, the financial hit because, um, we're worried about what's happening in society and the division that we see in society. Mm -hmm. Um, how much consideration is there for that? The premier has said, you know, they'll actually look at legislation to make sure that municipalities can't, as he calls it, improvise public health. Um, it sounds like there could be a battle looming here. Um, how far would you be willing to take this fight? Well, I, I hope, again, we don't have to fight because we all want the same outcomes,
2: right? We all want people to be healthy and safe. We all want uh, to address what, what are legitimate concerns around the mental health impact and so, so, social isolation that's uh, been a result of the measures that have been put in place. We all want the economic impacts to be uh, reversed because of the changes that have happened over the last two years. So instead of fighting, and instead of, instead of the default being, let's go create a law so this can't happen, or change the Municipal Government Act so this can't happen, why not just trust Albertans to say, hey, here's the information. We've considered both the recommendations of our Chief Medical Officer of Health and all of these other factors that we deem important when making decisions like this, and here's how we came to our decision. And then you don't have to fight yeah then you can just say hey we we've shared this and and we came to a different conclusion than the recommendations of our chief medical officer of health if that's the case uh but we we included these factors in that decision and, and i would have so much respect for for any order of government that takes time to share that kind of information with the people that they serve because it it tr- it allows it shows trust that the people that you represent will take the time to consider. Uh, what you presented to them and, and then it, you've taken the time to make a thoughtful decision.
0: Councillor Nack. I appreciate your time this morning and of course we'll follow this closely and see where it goes. Well, thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. That is Andrew Nack. From a positive and unifying
2: approach, a decision was made to wedge, to divide and to stigmatize. I fear that this politicization of the pandemic risks undermining the public's trust in our public health institutions. This is not a risk we ought to be taking lightly.
0: That is Liberal MP Joel Lightbound of Quebec earlier this week. He sort of became, well, he did become the first member of the Trudeau caucus to publicly break ranks and level some criticism the way the PM and uh, the party and the way they've handled this pandemic response. And his criticism didn't stop there. Beyond the divisive politics, he says... The federal COVID measures, uh, including vaccination mandates, need to be reevaluated. There needs to be a clear roadmap for Canadians on when and how that happens. Um, joining us now to talk about the situation is Randy Boissonneau, who is the Minister of Tourism in uh, the Liberal Cabinet and uh, an MP from Alberta. Um, Minister Boissonneau, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. It's my pleasure, Shay. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so a couple of different angles we can talk about here. First of all, the politicization and the division, and, and there's no question that it's reached a point where it's become really, really detrimental to society overall. You know, he's saying that the Prime Minister and the Liberal Party has some, you know, has to bear some of the blame there. Do you agree with what he had to say? Well, Shay, let me
3: start by taking a step back and just saying that uh, I feel very deeply how much people want to get back to normal life, and I know that I want to get out and see friends and family, and I know people want to get out to bars, go on vacation, see relatives, and actually stopped thinking about covid for the first time in two years and so yeah i know that there's good news and you know that the vaccines are working and uh they helped us get through this omicron wave and i do think that we got to make sure that we don't do too much too soon and i really do think that the measures that we put in place have kept people alive we see it in our in our mortality rates among the lowest in in the world and you know as well as I do, Shay, that the number one thing that we're trying to protect in all of this is our healthcare system and the health and security of Albertans. And I mean, take a look, it's like 94% of Alberta hospital beds are still full. And that includes the ICU beds. And and the toll that this is taking on healthcare workers is also a factor. So, if we take a step back and then we say, you know, why were the measures put in place? Well, they're put in place to keep Canadians safe, to keep our businesses afloat. That's why 9 out of 10 dollars of federal supports that came to Alberta came or supports that came to Alberta came from the federal government. And I do think that if you take a look at, you know, you use the word division. Yeah. And I think if we take a look at if we take a look at the actual numbers, we got like 90% of Canadians that have got at least the first dose, well over 80% got their second dose. I know, I and uh, most of the all of the people I know have got their third dose, if they're eligible. And so, I do also know that we had Canadian Armed Forces people helping us out in our own healthcare system in Alberta. So. I understand the frustration. I understand the, the expression of frustration. But, Shea, we also, and even the Conservatives today, have said it's time for the, the blockades to come down and the protests to end because we're seeing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a day being lost out of our economy. So the virus is our is our common adversary, not each other.
0: I, I agree. And I think most Canadians agree. Uh, um, it's just... The fact of how we got to this point, um, and, you know, I know, I know uh, a lot of people t- talk to me about the fact that, you know, the Prime Minister in that French interview coming out and talking about these people involved in the convoy and calling them misogynists and racist and being, you know, that's divisive. I don't think there's any other way to look at it, Randy. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, when you heard the Prime Minister say those things, what was your thought in terms of this is a good track to be on or is this just going to cause us more problems?
3: Well, I can say this. Like, I'm in Ottawa right now, Shay. And for, for Edmontonians, for Albertans, for you know, people back home th- that haven't, you know, seen the news or really taken a dive into this, like, the streets of Ottawa are occupied by by big trucks, big rigs, and a lot of vehicles from Alberta. And I get the, the frustration from home. And, look, we've we got to make sure that we use the, the right kind of brush, but Shay, like there was Confederate flags here. There was like Nazi flags here. Yeah, why well, you know is stuff that does not wash for Albertans and so well, here's what I know. I know people are frustrated. They want to get back to normal life. Like you mentioned it, I'm the Minister of Tourism. I want to I want to open the border tomorrow, but we got to do this in a way that's going to keep us safe. Look, I don't want the 12-year-old kid that's going to break their arm this weekend riding a bike to not get the health care. You know, you and I may have somebody that's going to have a heart issue or a cancer treatment and and get cancelled if those numbers go up. So here's what I can say. Every day, I work with my colleagues in government and with our provincial and municipal partners to make sure that we are able to have a responsible and safe reopening of the economy. And that means that be keep, keeping people safe, making sure that the vaccines uh, stay in place, but also that we're able to get back to normal as soon as it's safe and responsible to do so.
0: The other point he made, um, you know, the government could provide a plan. They could give Canadians a clear understanding of how long this might continue what's the point of these mandates as you know there's a lot of people that think the the trucker mandate doesn't make any sense um and uh other mandates that are in place just they don't make sense anymore so a plan as to when they may go away and why they're still needed um sure. that seems to make sense to me let me let me let me go to
3: this i'm going to go answer your question directly um We've got a, a cross-border issue. The U.S. has got a vaccine mandate in place. We made sure that we harmonized with them. And the, um, the president of the uh, organization that sort of monitors inter, uh, inter-country, like uh, trucking traffic between Canada and the U.S., yeah. has said that the, the, mandate, the vaccine mandates had no, no material effect on cross-border traffic. What is affecting traffic, Shay, is the Ambassador Bridge totally. blockade. And the Coots blockade. And so here's what I know and I'll be very direct. My colleagues and I are working in government, in the federal government, are working every day on uh, the ability to communicate to Canadians in a safe and clear way how we can reopen the economy and to do so in a way that follows the science, that sticks very close to the science, that also, you know, responds to where you know Canadians are, but to also make sure that people who did the right thing and got vaccinated are able to see themselves in the decisions that we make. So I do hear you very loudly and clearly. So does the tourism sector. I'll say another thing, Shay, that the full strength of the Canadian economy won't come back until the tourism sector does. And I learned something as tourism minister, which is that um, tourism is Alberta's number two export, right after oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And so we need the people to come back. And to do so, we need uh, a safe, responsible plan for reopening, and we're working on that every day.
0: Okay, uh, last one. The reopening plan, great. Uh, I look forward to seeing it. What about the plan to end this? You mentioned the Ambassador Bridge. I'm seeing more and more American politicians, uh, the Michigan Governor, the White House saying we need to get some resolution here. Now I'm seeing we've got the same situation at the Emerson Crossing in Manitoba, uh, Sarnia. Mm-hmm. You know what's going on in Coots. What is mm-hmm. going on here, Minister? Is there no, Are we helpless? Are we just completely you know, at the mercy of a group of truckers? I mean, is there a way that we can get out of this? Because there's a new one every day. We are working with
3: all of our partners to make sure that the rule of law prevails and that the safety and security of Canadians and that the free-flowing goods of goods across the borders uh, is resumed. And I can assure you that we are working on this issue uh, with great attention and great seriousness.
0: Okay. Law has been broken for a while. You know that. I mean, I'm just wondering what the holdup is to not enforce the law. I mean, we we've all declared these to be illegal. So why aren't we acting?
3: We are working on this with all of
0: our partners. I can tell you one thing: no amount of honking is
3: going to ma- is going to mask the fact that we've got uh, prob- you know, challenges at the border, uh, and that we're dealing with a serious virus and a serious disease. So mm-hmm. uh, we are going to work with our partners to make sure that uh, we uphold the rule of law.
0: Minister Boissonneau, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jay. All Thank you. All the best. That is Randy Boissonneau, who is Minister of Tourism, Federal Cabinet Minister in the Liberal Government. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here for at least a few minutes. Uh, have an interesting discussion. And a warning, it's going to be some pretty heavy stuff. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, domestic violence and in particular strangulation. So uh, just be aware of that. Okay, if that's going to cause you any kind of uh, consternation, understandable. Uh, just a heads up, that's where we're headed. Um, and around the world, um, you know, we've seen, really, it's, it's, it's very interesting, an increased emphasis on a particular aspect of intimate partner va- violence, which, as I said, is strangulation, and, and for very good reason. Not only is it a heinous crime on its own, it is also a, a really, really powerful predictor of the likelihood of a woman ultimately ending up dying at the hands of her partner if she survives strangulation throughout, you know, the relationship. It's it's really fascinating. I'm not doing it justice. So uh, let's chat now with Angela Marie McDougal, who is the Executive Director of Vancouver-based Battered Women Support Services. Angela, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Shane. Good morning. So this really is, I mean, just doing the reading about it and everything, it's really interesting to me how, how... it, uh, as I said, it's a heinous crime, and we need to deal with it on the surface just like that. But how powerful of an indicator it is of a situation that's at hand and obviously is headed in a very, very poor direction?
4: Well, you know, as you started at the top, we've seen more femicide. Uh, in the last three or four years, there's been there's been a spike in femicide. Uh, but what we've known over time is that it is a lethality factor. Uh, strangulation is a lethality factor that is, um, as you mentioned, and, uh, a strong indicator of uh, of potential death in um, in a domestic violence intimate partner situation. And so we've been uh, certainly wanting to raise awareness of it as a lethality factor to make visible uh, the fact that strangulation is um, uh, is very much a part of intimate partner violence, and also to uh, you know ultimately prevent. Uh, more violence, and also prevent
0: femicide. Where did this all start? I mean, it's been around for a few years now, but it all comes out of California, right, in terms of the information that we're learning around this?
4: Well, that's where the research has come out of, mostly in in California. Uh, There's a training institute on strangulation uh, prevention that has done and and created data that shows a really glaring picture of the severity of this kind of violence, and that Though so one in four women will experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime that what we know is in the, within those numbers sixty eight percent will suffer near fatal strangulation at the hands of their partner at some point uh, through the through the course of their relationship, including uh, strangled by hands, uh, losing consciousness uh, being sa- uh, strangled during uh, sexual assault or abuse as well as during pregnancy and um, and in those cases, seventy percent of women that were strangled, believe they were going to die. What's the situation? I know it's, a lot of, it's grim stuff, as you mentioned. Yeah. It's grim stuff for the morning. Uh, but this is these are the these are, this is happening yeah. in houses yeah. and homes and in relationships all across the
0: land. Absolutely, and it's so important. And you know, if we have this information and this understanding, it's important that we share it. Where are we in Canada in terms of incorporating this into the way we handle domestic violence? Are we doing the job that we need to do? Not yet. So that's
4: partly why, you know, we were really happy to begin speaking to, uh, you know, media in order to raise awareness. And and it matters a lot that we're having this conversation today because there isn't enough information. Now, we are, of course, you know, wanting to raise this through our own uh, promotion and through campaigns and information uh, through social media and, uh, you know, other forms But this kind of conversation is something that we don't get to have very often. So, uh, this is one of the ways that we're beginning to make visible that which has been rendered invisible for far too long.
0: But legislators have taken note, right? And they, there is some there's there's laws around this, uh, not only just in Canada in general, but Alberta's taken some recognition of this factor. I mean, it is something that's been recognized by law enforcement or, or at least legislators, right? Sure. I mean, here's the the thing
4: that probably that probably people don't know uh, is that Canada has some of the strongest laws on the books around domestic violence, partner violence, common assault, sexual assault, really progressive laws and policies. Uh, The problem that we have, Shane, and this might be for another conversation, is that... In general, we're not seeing uh, police services, and right. law enforcement actually enforcing those policies and those laws.
0: No, that's the conversation to have right now, I think, because, mm-hmm. you know what, you can put in the legislation, you can put it on the books, that's all well and good. But, you know, you mentioned law enforcement, and I think absolutely, I mean, they, there needs to be training and they need to be uh, doing a better job of it. But, but it's a whole systemic thing, isn't it? I mean, you're talking mm-hmm. about ER docs, you're talking about prosecutors. Like, you can't just put the law on the books and say, okay, we've handled it. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, and we've done a lot
4: of work. And, and fortunately, you know, well, unfortunately, I don't know what way, what way to characterize it. But we have been able to shine increasingly more light on what's happening in homes, you know, into a partner. Uh, violence scenarios, at least over the last few years under, you know, under the restriction under COVID-19 and and drawing attention to how um, that can contribute to increased um, isolation. And so that's been a really good thing in the sense that we've been able to make visible uh, these uh, concerns and also the ways in which organizations are providing support to survivors. Uh, and also how to, you know, advocating with law enforcement. And we need to do a lot more of it. I mean, this is, quite frankly, kind of the beginning in a way. And so uh, we're not near uh, at critical mass in terms of attention paid to this. And you're right. It's the laws, certainly. But, of course, it's, uh, you know, it's a medical profession. I have, you know, in the organization I work for, Batter Women's Support Services, we advocated strongly to be able to uh, provide training to uh, you know, to uh, general practitioners, family family doctors, and it's only been recently that we, you know, that I've had the, uh, you know, I'm going to call it the privilege. To be able to provide training to residents at the University of British Columbia Medical School, so as, you know, and it's you know, it's a two-hour session. Shane, I mean, just it's not nearly enough. Yeah. Uh, however, it's um, you know, it, it is so important. Physicians uh, often are the first point of contact. Survivors report to their family doctor uh, in in great um, in great numbers, and you know, and they're often ill prepared to respond, uh, and so that's a, a big piece of work. Uh, we haven't had this full commitment, you know, in, by our governments, you know, whether it's municipal, provincial or federal, uh, to really take seriously the lethality, the, uh, you know, how epidemic the violence is and also the services. So uh, this is the work that our organization has set out to do. And there's many organizations in Alberta that are uh, doing that as well. And we join, we link arms with, with yeah. them, uh, both in terms of service, but also awareness raising.
0: Yeah, and it's such important work, and I hope we did some of that here today, Angela. I really appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you, Shane. Thanks for this opportunity, truly. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. That's Angela Marie McDougall, who is the Executive Director of Vancouver-based Battered Women Support Services. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.